poverty alleviation and environmentalism are two sides of the same coin. You cannot, you cannot just focus on one of them without, without also focusing on the other. You, you really, if you want to build sustainable societies, invest in the environment. We already know that 50% of global GDP is moderately or highly dependent upon nature. And what COVID-19 has done is it's, is it's told that to the world. Welcome to another episode of Animalia's podcast, where we dive into various topics in the world of climate, conservation, and wildlife. I'm James. And I'm Annalie. We are here today with uh, Niall McCann, who we met through our Pangolin Conference. It's actually how we originally introduced uh, Niall, and uh, he and I have had some fun talks since, and I've just been blown away by everything he's done in conservation and climate and just his viewpoints and love of the natural world as a, as a biologist, as an adventurer, as an explorer, as a scientist. And so we're so lucky to have him today here. Niall, thanks for joining us and excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure to be here. And for our listeners, just so to give you a little taste of, you know, Niall's uh, background and accomplishment, um, he is an official Nat, uh, Nat Geo explorer, which we'll, we'll kind of get into in a little bit. He is uh, the director, uh, you know, co-founder of National Park Rescue. We're going to talk about quite a bit. Uh, he has done so many interesting, incredible adventures. One of them we're going to talk about today is, I believe, you rode across the entire Atlantic Ocean over six <laughs> days. Yeah, uh, and these are just some of the examples of things he's already done, even at a young age. Um, and uh, yeah, just incredible. I think. I look at your background, uh, also, you know, as, 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 a, as been a TED speaker, uh, as presented at a variety of events, I actually just <clears throat> uh, heard Mal speak at British Parliament, which was, was right. fascinating a month ago. And uh, yeah, I mean, I look at your background and all the things you've done already, it's sort of, it's, it's hard to imagine anybody can do what you've done in a lifetime, let alone you're only halfway through your life. So pretty, well, pretty remarkable. It's partially kind of imposter syndrome, always feeling as though someone's going to catch up with you. So to quickly try and do something useful that, that, <laughs> that makes you not be such an imposter. Uh, and then like, like a lot of people, I suppose, just, just kind of proving to yourself that you're, you're all right. That this kind of nag nagging self-doubt that you're actually just useless at stuff. So, so, so trying to do as much as possible to, to prove to yourself that actually you're not completely useless and there is some use for you in the world. And I'm assuming this love of the natural world and, and wildlife and planet Earth has been in, you know, ingrained in you as far as you can remember. Or do you, was there a, a specific moment you kind of look back on that sort of created the, the man you are today? There was never anything else I was going to be other than a biologist, somewhat fascinated with the natural world, because my, my whole family are biologists and have been interested in the natural world. But I, my parents remind me of an incident when I was six years old that really kind of kicked it off. So all their family, all their friends were kind of eminent biologists and we were being visited up in North Wales where we used to live by Professor Nigel Leader-Williams, who's a very eminent professor of conservation here in the UK. And we were walking along a beach and we found a dead seabird called a razorbill. And I was six years old and I was fascinated by this dead razorbill when I was looking at it. And Nigel at this time decided that he was going to take the opportunity to ask me about my career. And this kind of eminent bearded professor looked down at me and said, what do you want to do with your life for the night? What do you want to be? And I was looking at this razorbill and I said, well, I'm going to be a biologist for my life. I think I'll, I think I'll study birds. 
razor bills most probably so from the age of six i've been wow. announcing to anyone that'll listen that i was going to be a biologist i don't think there was any turning back that's you've, uh, you've definitely fulfilled that mission i've uh, never studied razor bills i feel almost, <laughs> almost like i've cheated my six-year-old self <laughs> i never actually studied razor bills there's still time i'm still young there's still time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely curious before we get into the topics we we set out to to go through started with National Park Rescue and understanding more about the program. What are your reflections on what's going on in the world this year? Uh, you know, yeah. and, and, and its relation to your work, its relation to the things that you're convicted, um, you're convicted in and uh, things you've been, you've been fighting and working on. Uh, I'm sure it's been, this experience for everybody has, has been a, a experience of reflection, of deep mm. thought, of understanding you know, why it is we got here, how we got here, how do we prevent this from happening again? But what has it been like for you, given, given your background? Yeah, it's deeply distressing, of course, but then also an affirmation that what I'm doing is the right thing to make the world a better place. And it's, it's no longer that I'm just out there hugging bunnies. I'm out there working on a, a project that has the potential to stop the next pandemic. So with COVID-19, COVID-19 was caused by a breakdown in conservation. Something went wrong in conservation. And what seems to have happened is that a coronavirus living in bats jumped into pangolins because they're kept in horrendous conditions and trafficked illegally, and then jumped into people. My organization explicitly arrests pangolin traffickers. We're specifically working on that exactly ourselves. We've arrested two pangolin traffickers this year. But broader than that, what COVID-19 has demonstrated to us is that human health and environmental health are totally intertwined. And I've been arguing this for years. At a previous event in Parliament, I was trying to say that poverty alleviation and environmentalism are two sides of the same coin. You cannot, you cannot just focus on one of them without, without also focusing on the other. You really, if you want to build sustainable societies, invest in the environment. We already know that 50% of global GDP is moderately or highly dependent upon nature. And what COVID-19 has done is it's, is it's told that to the world. It's no longer just a bunch of obscure, green-minded economists that have done the maths and know this. It's now known by people everywhere in the world because they've been shut in their houses for four months reading about how coronavirus came out of a breakdown in conservation. So what it's done for me is it's made me yet more resolved that what I'm, what I'm trying to do by protecting habitats, reducing the trade in wildlife, is making the world a better place. And now I think that more people agree with me. Exactly, definitely. It has been like a, I guess, like shaking the world to, to wake up to see the obvious, as you're saying. Yeah, there's like there's penny drop moments that, that happen every now and then. And Australia burning uh, in January was the penny drop moment for, ooh, is climate change happening yeah it seems to be real australia's on fire and and now we've got the arctic having 38 degrees centigrade all, all of these little things it, it's just the penny drops covid19 the penny drops that our relationship with nature is broken and we need to fix it yeah unfortunately the and this is absolutely right and the driver of what we do here at animalia too and the reason we spend so much time talking about these things but these things get incredibly politicized and it's uh, do, do you have a thought on how we can depoliticize climate change? Uh, and, and... <laughs> Sorry if I give you agony at that question. It's just, it's just madness. It's madness yeah. that climate change has become political, that 
an existential threat to the entire <laughs> our own species and the planet has become something that's political. It's, it's just it's lunacy. But what what it demonstrates is that one side of the political spectrum takes facts and sees them as important, and the other side of the political spectrum sees them as inconvenient. And right. unfortunately, that's that's difficult to change because a huge portion of society is inconvenienced by facts that go against their their worldview. But you've got to come along with these people. I, I, it's very easy just to patronise someone for being a, an imbecile. People that believe in that, that believe that climate change isn't happening are akin to people that believe the world is flat, and people that believe that creationism is real. It's it's similar intellectual levels now, but to treat them with contempt, I think, is 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 the wrong approach. So we have to try and bring them along with us, and demonstrating that climate change has a personal and tangible impact is a way of doing that. And unfortunately, climate change is now having that tangible impact on people all across the world. It's no longer something that happens far away. It now happens to all of us. Then accepting that we can have some personal responsibility, that's what a lot of people struggle with as well, because they think, oh, it's too big for me. It's not, it's not too big for you. We can all make a difference on it. It's tiny little changes that won't remotely inconvenience us, that if anything can make us healthier, will also have a net positive effect. And trying to enable people to feel that they have this sort of theory of change, they can have that personal positive impact on the world around them, I think will bring them along, as tempting as it is just to deride them for being morons. Yeah. And often the frustration I have when the next level of this discussion that I usually have with people on the other side, right, is that, hey, look, uh, I'm not denying science, but this is a product of capitalism. And in a world of, in a, in a capitalist market, people are going to be optimizing for profits. And so if you want to, you know, save climate change, then you're basically advocating for socialism. And I get really frustrated with that because I don't agree with that. Um, I do think there are free market solutions out there that we can and should embrace. And I do think free markets do by and large create progress and innovation. Um, and I think like, you know, carbon tax is a great example, right? A carbon tax and actually deploying a carbon tax on a global level would have a major impact and is, is part of a free market solution. And so I, I get frustrated when people sort of put it against, well, you know, if you're fighting for climate change, you're fighting against capitalism. And but it's, yes, it's capital, yeah, capitalism is a, no, uh, what I say is unhinged capitalism is a problem. Unhinged capitalism is a driver of these problems. But just to say free trade is the call, we have to, to, to fight climate change is to, to say you hate free trade. I just don't agree with at all. No, it, it's it's the typical imbecility that, that, that you expect. So again, the re the reason why we're not seeing a, a more rapid change into sustainable industries is because of government subsidy. Government subsidies currently massively prop up the most damaging industries. There's, that's that's an example of socialism, if ever I heard it, taking government subsidies to prop up a business. And the businesses that are propped up at the moment are the damaging businesses. If we change the government subsidy model, you then have a real free market. Because you don't have a proper free market if these industries are being subsidized and incentivized by government to carry on extracting. So their argument is flawed from its very inception. That They're arguing for something that just doesn't exist and it's madness. And you're right, there are catalytic solutions to... Uh, to, to, to climate change and investment in sustainable um, technologies is can reap a greater reward than investment in unsustainable technologies. We see that in conservation in Africa, in 
every for every dollar invested in conservation Africa, you get five dollars in return. That's a pretty good rate of return. And if we just if we get major global economies to start to realize that actually we need to shift our subsidy system, then that I think is going to create a huge change very, very quickly. Can you uh, unpack that equation a little more just for, for listeners and for us? I'm curious on, uh, I mean, that's a powerful, um, you know, data point uh, as an example. Can you unpack that a little more? Uh, for the, the subsidies, the idea yeah, of subsidies. On, on yeah. the dollar in Africa, um, leading to $5 in return. Yeah, so principally, the, 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 I believe there was a report out by the UN yesterday, which I've only seen the headline, but it said for $1 invested, you get $5 in return. Principally at the moment, investment uh, in conservation in Africa is through tourism. And there's a huge rate of return in that. But that's also, that's the house of cards that's ready to fall down, as we've mm -hmm. witnessed with COVID-19. And what we have to start realizing is that we need to put conservation and the environment at the heart of our economies. You need to start valuing ecosystem services because we need to have intact rainforests. We need to have intact landscapes to have functioning societies. And if we start to start to put an actual value in that, be that the carbon or other, or other programs, pollination services, which we require pollination for 35% of global agriculture. If we chop down our forests, that goes 35% of your global agriculture. That's pretty significant. The, the impact that intact landscapes have on our economies is vast. And at the moment, we, we've already seen in the region of nine to $10 trillion committed to reconstruct economies over the next, few, over the next couple of years as a result of COVID-19. It would take a fraction of that, 35 times less, to enact all of the Paris climate change levers at once. And so by committing a fraction of the money that's already committed to reconstruct our economies, we can do all of the good things that the Paris Climate Accord has tried to achieve overnight. It, it makes no sense not to do this. The only reason it doesn't happen is because of vested interests and lobbying groups. And unfortunately, those are particularly uh, virulent in Congress. And, and, in, and in the right-wing parties across the world. We see it everywhere. It's madness. But yeah, the guys like the Koch brothers are making the world a worse place. Only one of them left, but he's still making the world, the world a far worse place by being in the pocket of your congressman. Yeah, these archaic systems and these systems of control and power and lobbyists uh, that, you know, I, we're all set up at a time when we just didn't know, honestly, uh, all the science we know today. And we've had a hard time unwinding and breaking those systems because those who benefit the most from those system existings are the ones that are in control. And, mm -hmm. and until that changes, right? Um, sometimes I, I wonder if we won't get there until we just have a generational power change. And, 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 and yeah. perhaps like sort of, it sounds dire and terrible saying it, but the old guard needs to sort of die off and, and retire and move out of the system. But uh, it's true. Like, the, yeah. the phrase goes that science advances one funeral at a time, but, but it's not just science. It, it's morality advances one funeral at a time as well. Like, things take generations to shift, which, which is why, like, so within the conservation world, it, it's interesting because here in, here in the UK and in Western Europe, people are aghast that you might want to use elephant ivory or, or rhino horn or have a gorilla hand ashtray. But my parents' generation all had gorilla hand ashtrays and they all had elephant foot umbrella stands. It was just normal. Everyone wore fur. It's, it takes a generation for things to shift. And, and China may be a generation behind this when it comes to the use of these substances. But in a generation's time, they might be seen as completely progressive. That gives me hope because, again, I do think that like the younger generations are 
because of the access of information and I think the ability to see the world and more of like the interconnectedness of it. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing is that is that ability that connectivity and that ability to see everyone else in the world. So you can see actually that's that, that's I'd like to be like that. So if you're an LGBT LGBT person living in a repressive society and seeing someone with freedom elsewhere, that's what you want. If if, if you're someone with conservation mindset and you can see it elsewhere, that's what you want. And yeah, connectivity is amazing for that. It, it gives you an opportunity to be aspirational. I also think it's probably. It might be for me the most unintelligible and uh, way to defend a position is by saying somebody else did it. Hmm. It's so yeah. mad. Okay. And, and we see that today with our president all the time. You know, just an example this week when people are asking him about the spread of coronavirus and his answer is, well, well, he's pointing to what he thought were faulty policies by Obama during H1N1. And it's like, nobody's asking you about H1N1. Like it's, it's like, it doesn't matter. What are you doing about the current pandemic that we're facing? And his only answer is, well, somebody else did something wrong at some point. That's somehow justification for you to knowingly do wrong things because somebody else, somebody else did something mm -hmm. wrong. It's just such an unintelligible way to defend actions. In yeah. Life. It's just, but people, people don't like taking personal responsibility. Like Trump was specifically asked, do you take responsibility? They said, no, right. no responsibility. But like, we, we, we should all be taking personal responsibility for our actions. And, and if, if, if people were slightly more introspective, the world would be a much better place. Yeah. Well, let's move into the so positive discussion about National Park Rescue, because I think the work that you've done and the, the comprehensive and holistic approach you take to it is what I think is so new and different from what I've seen out there. And we've talked a little bit about this, especially in, you know, potentially bringing it to other parts of the world, right? In Laos, and I talk with Francois, but can you share with our listeners first, what is National Park Rescue? Uh, how did it get started? Uh, quick summary of the parks that you have already intervened and worked on, and then what makes it so different from past programs to, you know, support, support and sustain national parks? Yeah, so National Park Rescue was born because we realized that animals were still dying despite hundreds of millions of dollars being committed to their conservation every year. So we were particularly interested in elephants, rhinos and lions for, for whatever reason. And there are hundreds of charities that say they're protecting elephants, but we're still losing tens of thousands a year. The latest count is between 20 and 30,000 have been killed for their ivory every single year. So if hundreds of, thousands, hundreds of charities are protecting elephants, but we're still losing thousands a year, then people are clearly not doing their job very well. So it was against that background that we decided to set up National Park Rescue with the aim of identifying national parks in Africa in the most need of help and then trying to save them. So our first operation was in Luande National Park in Malawi, which was absolutely on its knees after decades of unfettered poaching massive corruption we estimated that 80 percent of the rangers there were actually actively engaged in poaching and it had lost all but nine of its rhinos it had only a few hundred elephants left it had been shot to oblivion we moved in a really short-term operation and in nine months we arrested over 70 poachers removed 10,000 snares and gin traps and started the reformation of the country's outdated wildlife laws so that was a really successful kind of pilot project and then on the back of that, we decided, well, let's, do, let's take something on ourselves that's bigger and longer term. So we, we looked around Africa at which national parks are struggling to contain elephant poaching. And we, we wanted to focus on 
the area where there's the largest population of elephants left in Africa, which is the, the, the Kaza, the area around the Zambezi where, where five countries meet. And in that region, two national parks in particular have been just pummeled. Kisumu National Park in Zambia and Chisirira National Park in Zimbabwe, which had lost 80% of its elephants in a 10 year period. So we, we, we went and we visited them and we lobbied the government to start working in, in Chisirira in Zimbabwe, which is the one we ended up choosing. And in the two and a bit years that we've been working there, indicators of poaching are now down by 98%. Elephant poaching is down by 90%. Arrests are up by 550%. Snare removals up by 250%. And lion numbers, which is the species that we've got the best data for in terms of numbers, lion numbers are up by 40%. So we've, we've had a pretty extraordinary impact in a short time. And the way we do that is, which was multifold, it's by focusing on poverty alleviation as well as as well as conservation by appreciating that those are two sides of the same coin if you ostracize and you alienate the local communities you're off to a terrible start it's bad for human rights so it's morally wrong but also you just you're building yourself up to fail you need to have your first line of defense be the communities whose livelihoods are based on that, that national park so we were the largest local employer and we set up what we call a micro economy whereby the park and the communities end up being interdependent on each other through commerce and employment and in the long term through tourism. So focus on, on communities has been a really big part of it. But a major part, possibly the most important thing really, is that we, we don't relinquish funds. We're not a donor. We're an implementer. We do this work ourselves. So it's our teams that we hire that do all the work. Whereas most, most organizations will pay someone else to do it for them. They'll, they'll pay the, the, the park rangers or they'll, they'll pay the government to do something. That money will disappear and you will not have results. You will not have accountability. Whereas because we do not relinquish a single penny, we are accountable for every dollar that is donated to us. And as a result, we're incredibly lean. We are a lean organization, do not cost much. And we have a remarkable rate of return for every bit of investment. So, so we consider ourselves a bit of a disruptor because it's, sli it's slightly new. We're, we're focused heavily on law enforcement to make sure that that is right, that these parks are protected. But we do that by integrating the communities as well as by beefing up the, the law enforcement capacity of a park. And we do not relinquish funds and we will never be a donor. And can you talk a little bit to, you guys also really focus on creating revenue and job opportunities for local communities, which is I think is so important uh, to this work because we have to be, we have to be helping both you know, wildlife and humans at the same time, because what we want is we want those local communities to continue to, to stand up for that park, right? And fight for that yeah. park and say, hey, I actually will have a better life for myself with this park being protected than I will by getting paid to, you know, either poach or just turn a blind eye and let a poacher in, right? Which is, which is very common. So can you talk more about the local communities around these parks in Africa and how you are benefiting their day-to-day -day lives um, the jobs being created. And, and I think you've talked as well as like trying to get these parks to a self, place of sustainability, self-sustainability where they can actually generate enough revenue uh, to sustain the staff and the support they need uh, on a long-term basis. Yeah. So it's, it's absolutely vital that the communities see the park as an asset to be protected. Uh, we can think of that in a kind of uh, in, a, in a holistic way in that the park provides all of their ecosystem services. So that's where they get their water, that's where they get their pollination services, it's where they get their clean air. 
but that's that's difficult to value in in, in real terms. So you you can you have to also layer on actual just just cash dollars or or the trader to begin with. But I think it, I think it's vital that you do encourage people to understand the intrinsic value of nature and how important these places being intact is to them. But ecosystem services is quite an abstract thought for, for, for even very well-educated people that have got a degree in conservation biology. It's certainly very abstract for someone living in a rural part of Zimbabwe. So really they need to see immediate tans tangible benefits. And employment's the obvious way to do that. For, to run a national park, to make a national park thrive, you need a large employment base. And you should get that from the communities nearby. They should be the first place you go. In our case, there are eight chieftainships that surround the national park. And as much as possible, we try, we try to hire people equally from each of those. It's very difficult for lots of reasons, but, but we try and do that. We've just hired five new female rangers, our first female ranger team, and we've got one, one from each of five communities. So, so we're, we're seeing that benefit. Another major, major thing for us is, is creating this kind of flow of commerce as well between the park and the communities that surround it. So if you've got a park of 30 rangers that are hired centrally by the government, they'll be brought from all over the country to, to work there but they need feeding and you can get that food from anywhere, but you should get it from the communities that surround you. So we've set, we've set up a system, we call it the community ration supply scheme. And that's pumped in the last two years, it would be now over $40,000 of, tra of trade between the park and the communities in an area that is cash starved. Like this does not have much cash. So that's, that's valuable hard currency going into the communities in order to feed the rangers. That's, that's something that needs to happen ongoing. They, buy, they would buy their food from elsewhere if we didn't make them buy them from the communities directly around them. And that's, that's been a really big thing. And then also tourism is important. As I mentioned before, I think it's vital that tourism doesn't prop up conservation. We need to move away from that kind of model and, and look at funding carbon sequestration and, and, and other issues, and funding, funding ecosystem services. But for the time being, tourism is an important uh, part of conservation. And to make that tourism community focus is really important as well so, so setting up homestays having community visits we're trying to invest at the moment we're, we're in negotiations with a, a community cultural museum it's the tonga people that live there fascinating history the people that visit the area want to know about that should be built and staffed by local people so just making sure that local people are the focus for everything because after all this is their natural heritage you're protecting and for many of them, you might be protecting it against, against their will, but, but you, you, you still need to integrate them to everything. And if they start seeing that, that tans will benefit, then they will report to you when a poacher comes into the area and when someone's going to start committing a criminal act. They will become your first line of defense. And that's what's vital. It's, it's maddening to me that we still have a hard time funding ecosystem services. Because the, yeah. the, the data is there that shows the negative economic impact of more carbon being released and mm -hmm. the value of these wild ecosystems and sequestering carbon. So it doesn't take, um, you know, a lot of calculus to actually put a dollar amount of what that, of essentially the, the cost savings, right? Yeah. Um, and of what those, these ecosystems create every year. And that, you know, the, the bigger corporations and government and, and taxing services should be funding that. And this is where, like, again, I might be now advocating for something that might sound more socialism in nature. But again, I believe that we need to take parts of socialism and parts of capitalism, you know, to create the right government systems. That there is no extreme that is the, the right answer. But if, we, if we're able to do this, then I look at what's happening in Brazil, right? I mean, it's, it's why shouldn't we be paying indigenous people? 
to do what they do, which is live harmoniously with their environment to protect it, to stand up for it. Instead, we give them the only option of like, look, you're either going to starve or you're going to deforest and, and plant crops. Right. Mm -hmm. And then of course, like people need to survive. If, if that's the only option you give them, like they, 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 they may, or in Brazil's case, you're forcing it on them. You're not even really giving them a choice. Let's be honest. You're just telling them like, this is what's going to happen. But to me, it seems so obvious that we should just say, hey, indigenous people serve an incredible value to us. They maintain these ecosystems which sequester carbon, which prevent things like the bushfires, which prevent things uh, like mm -hmm. hurricane disasters. Um, and that's incredible economic value that we're saving by having one less hurricane or one less bushfire. And so we should pay the indigenous people to do what they do. And they are already creating economic value. The, the thought that in indigenous people and indigenous tribes throughout the world are not, you know, creating economic value is absurd. They're doing it every day they live, doing what they, like living the life that, and living in the culture and, and, the, and the life they live. And we just, we just, we just sort of, we won't acknowledge it. But it's one there. of the issues. One of the issues is that GDP is, is still how we, we, we base our idea of value, which is an absurdity. We need to really go beyond GDP as being the ultimate arbiter of value and look at many, many other things. And yeah, you're right, protection of ecosystem services. What's, what's a thriving society if it's basically turned into a desert because you've, because you've chopped down all your, all your trees? That, that's not a thriving society, even if shareholders are getting really rich. That's, that's just a bad metric for success and, and that, that needs to change. And things are changing. Like you look at the World Economic Forum, like the guys from Davos, the, the, these are like your uber capitalistic economists. They are now realizing that we need to start living in harmony with nature. They, they, they announced earlier this year in January that biodiversity loss is the second most impactful and the third most likely risk to humanity in the next decade. Biodiversity loss, when you've, when you've got like the top economists of the world looking at the loss of biodiversity as being a genuine threat to humanity, you, you know that things have changed. Mm -hmm. It was only last year that Britain's the United Kingdom's Chancellor of the Exchequer, so that's a, the guy that runs the economy, said that, oh, it's going to cost us far too much to green economy. And now this year, you've got the, the Treasury investing in a, a report on biodiversity and, and economics and realizing that we need to put biodiversity first if we're going to have sustainable economies. And every time you hear someone say, oh, it's going to cost us too much, look at how much it costs to clean up after a hurricane and how much less damage there would have been if your mangroves were intact. If you had flood mitigation because you, because you had trees up in the watersheds, the amount of money we're spending on cleaning up after the disasters of, of climate change way outweighs how much it would cost us to prevent it in the first place by putting in natural systems. Let nature take its course. Nature's very good at absorbing these, these changes, these, this flux, whereas pavement is no good at that. Annalise actually now experienced this twice firsthand, um, which, uh, you know, going to get your perspective on Anna, because at one, the floods in Houston that happened, I think it was 2016. Yeah. Was it, was it, Anna, what mm -hmm. was the, the, was that the year? 2017. 2017. That um, the cost of those floods, right. And the damage they caused because in Houston, there was such a determination to be the fastest growing city and just concrete yeah, laid down and all these right. wetlands. And now Anna and, you know, her family and her community is going through it again with Houston being one of the hardest hit cities in this pandemic. And think yeah. about that, the healthcare costs, right, that Houston is incurring from this pandemic. So twice, you know, that's two examples in a span of four years 
that the the incredible costs from sort of violating uh, our sort of you know harmony with nature. One on on the floods and and now it, with the pandemic. And so, I mean, it's just they're real. Like these things are happening real time. And you know, Annalise unfortunately had to kind of go through this twice now with her and her family. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. I yeah, think uh, like like the points that were made, the whole like, approach of trying to fix things after they happen versus taking the precautions that are, you know, they're, they're there. We, we can really point to the science on that. Um, so yeah, again, shifting that mentality, the mindset of being prepared and having prevention be the first priority versus, okay, well, how do we fix it after when there's again, even greater devastating impact, both economically, social, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so Houston's a perfect example, because you're right, it's basically just a pavement, it's, mm-hmm. which is absurd. You, you built on on five giant bayous and you paved over the entire thing. So you've taken a, a natural sponge and, and right. stuck concrete on top of it, which is mental. But then COVID-19 as well. Like we saw, we saw what happened with SARS. SARS gave us the warning that this can happen. And the Chinese changed the laws on, on wildlife markets for three months, and then they put it back again, and it happened again. So we, we could stop this happening, because we know that about two-thirds of emerging infectious diseases are coming out of nature. We need to reduce that human-nature interface by stopping deforesting and reducing the trade in wildlife. We, we know this. We cannot afford another pandemic. It's madness that, this is, that people are still considering going back to the status quo. Because we've seen what, what's happened yeah. to the planet as a result of this. We know the answers. We know how to fix this. You fix it by, by fixing our relationship with nature. Uh, just a real quick finish here about National Park Rescue. Uh, Niall, what's the, the next target? Of, or do you guys know, I guess two-part question. One, do you know where you're going next? And then my other part of that question is, I'm just curious on what the starting process is. So do you guys have to sort of wait until you have enough funds to get going? Or do you identify a park and then sort of raise just the initial funds to get that park project going until the point where it's sustainable? Just kind of walk us through the, the starting process of how do you identify the park and then how do you get going uh, from a resource standpoint? Yeah, so our kind of growth trajectory aims are to be running two parks simultaneously by the end of 22. 2022 and five parks simultaneously by the end of 2027 if we possibly can and that's that's quite a rapid growth strategy that's needed but it's not beyond the realms of possibility especially because we are so unbelievably lean we are we are good value for money won't cost you much to be running five national parks however many hundreds of thousands of hectares uh, of, of space in in africa and then the process is about identifying where next and I've, I've started looking around now we're not yet in a position where we're sufficiently resourced to take on a second we're we're really focused on zimbabwe on chisarira national park but we're going to start ramping up fundraising over the next little while and i've started to look at where needs us and that's the important thing because there's lots of places where you could go and lots of places that would want you but we want to go to places that are most important for the long-term survival of elephants rhinos and lions so it's having a look at those population trajectories and at the moment central africa is a very interesting place because a lot of elephants are coming out of the forests of central africa lions are dropping off a cliff everywhere really which is quite quite disturbing whereas rhino numbers are holding more or less steady except in northern botswana where they're losing huge numbers of rhinos very, very rapidly. So there's, there's quite a few places that are coming up as, as being targets at the moment. And probably in this next 12 months, I'll, I'll, I'll focus on one. And then we need to do two things. 
you need to start negotiations with that local government because they won't just let anyone come in and start working in national parks. So that, that's quite a long diplomatic process, but we have a good track record. And then secondly, we need to resource that because we need to double our current income in order to be able to take on a second park. Um, that's, that's not, again, not beyond the wit of man. So we'll make sure it happens. Well, I'm going to continue to lobby for an Ampui. If, yeah, you're, <laughs> if you're willing to tackle the, the matrix that is the Lao and Chinese government. <laughs> Sounds like a yeah, an awesome problem, but that means that means it's worth doing. <laughs> if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Yeah, no, I mean, I really do sit in agony um, over the future future of Dampui because um, it is yeah. one of the last remaining major uh, biodiversity areas in Southeast Asia, and it, you know the the China government has been on this mission to build essentially a super highway between. Kunming, which is the biggest southern city in China and Singapore. And Lao and Nampui is directly in that path. Um, and, you know, they, they're just looking at the economic return of, you know, creating that super, you know, highway to and, and rail lines right to Singapore. Yeah, this is something that's really interesting with China because they're, they're starting to realize that they need to shift on domestic policy on wildlife trade and, and conservation in general. And they've really clamped down on things like the ivory trade. Uh, recently, they've, they've restricted access to pangolins through mm -hmm. TCMs. There's still some access, but, but, but they're, they're making the right moves. But their, their foreign policy is still purely extractive, <laughs> essentially detrimental to the planet. And I think that's quite important is that, is that, their, that their foreign policy starts to align with the domestic narrative. That might well take some time. But again, making them understand that there are serious economic benefits to investing in sustainable solutions and that you can, you can build back better, we can put money into nature and, and you still do well economically. That's really important that that breaks through the edifice of the Chinese Communist Party because at the moment, their Belt and Road Initiative is a catastrophe for, for nature, an absolute catastrophe. And that needs to change. Yep. Yeah, it's very worrisome. I've, I've shifted my own agenda to think, okay, now I, I really have to do is figure out a way to get to the right people within the China uh, side of things yeah. and convince them, hey, what if you actually paid uh, Laos to maintain places like Nampui and uh, biodiversity yeah. and use that to increase, like you can still increase your relationship with Laos and increase your influence in other areas. But why don't you actually maintain these these things and be a beacon of a positive change. And actually, you know, this could benefit China on a long-term basis from a PR standpoint, from you know, just a recognition that China is being proactive and going ahead of the curve on yes. uh, how they're expanding their foreign relations. But, you know, obviously I'm one man here in Los Angeles and influencing the China. And there's a precedent for this because that's essentially what Norway have been doing. So, so Red Plus, the reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, which is a, a UN initiative uh, where developed nations are meant to try and provide financial incentives to developing nations to seek low carbon development strategy. And Norway pumps 250 million into, into Guyana, a billion into Indonesia and into Brazil. The issue is then compliance with that. And, and of course... Brazil went, oh yeah, thanks for that billion, and we'll carry on chopping the, chopping the uh, rainforest down. What needs to be is accountability and sanctions levied against countries that, that violate that. But, but there is already a precedent for rich nations setting aside money to, for poor nations to protect their habitats. And it's not that, so it's, it's not beyond, again, not beyond the wit of man. Also, just being that one guy 
you just need to meet the one other right guy in China. And that's all it takes. Like, all these things that, that I've done in the past, like when, when I first started forest protection in Honduras, that's because I, I met the guy that could get me a meeting with the Minister for Environment. It's just, and, and that, that door was open. Suddenly I'm sat there with the minister telling him there's a problem in a national park that he'd never heard of. And that, that's all it requires is, is that meeting with the right person. So being that one person, ah, that doesn't matter. Got to try. And yeah. I, I love, the, love the phrase, I'm sure you've heard it. I think it's attributed to the Dalai Lama, but, it, but someone else might have come up with it first. He says, if you, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try spending a night in a room with a mosquito. And I, I love that because I like to think of us all as, as being mosquitoes. Each, each and every one of us is a mosquito. We can have a massive difference. We just need to believe that we can. Hopefully more positive than mosquitoes. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> depends, depends what Yeah, exactly. Hopefully it's not infecting mass numbers of people. <laughs> yeah. We know, we know we can do that. We've already yeah. proven that we, we're capable yeah, we of that. Yeah. Uh, so I want to shift gears a little bit to what's happening in Botswana. Mm. And uh, this is a real time, you know, kind of story unveiling uh, the elephant deaths that seem to still be a mystery. I know you're involved yeah. in this. Can you just first just uh, inform people what is happening, what we know so far, and, you know, maybe, you know, what your involvement has been and what, you know, what the theories are that might be causing. causing yeah. Back in early March, a few elephants were spotted dying in the Okavango Delta by local conservationists. Never, didn't raise too many alarms, but they didn't know what was killing them. And that was slightly unusual. And then by the end of May, there was an assumption that this was still carrying on. So a group of local conservationists did a flight over the area. And in three hours, they identified 169 carcasses, which is a concerning number. <laughs> that's, that's many more than you would expect to see. And suddenly alarm bells were ringing that something's amiss here. A month later, nothing had been done. So the government said that they were sending samples to labs to find out what it was, but, but they hadn't done that. So another flight went over and spotted another 187 carcasses, bringing the total to 356. And that's just the ones that were seen because elephants are hard to see from the air. There will be many, many more dead ones out there that weren't counted. Suddenly, the press got hold of this story and I've spent most of the last two weeks on the phone to different press organizations across the world talking to them about the situation in Botswana because what is incredibly perplexing is that we're losing hundreds of elephants and we do not know why. There are three candidate reasons for this. The first one is that it's a natural toxin, something like a cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, anthrax. Could be that. I suspect it probably isn't because only elephants are being killed, but it could be a natural toxin. Second one is that it's a pathogen, a disease. We've, we've all just lived with, or we're all still living with a disease that jumped from one species into another. That could be a zoonotic event. It could be some other viral issue that's killing all these elephants. We don't know, but a disease is quite a likely possibility. And the third possibility is that it's poison. That would either be poachers, but it's probably unlikely, or it could be farmers, because anyone that lives near elephants doesn't like them, unfortunately, especially if you're an agriculturalist. And there's a lot of human elephant conflict in Botswana. So at the moment, really, the government of Botswana and their international partners are scrambling to try and find out what this is. Firstly, to figure out whether or not it's going to spill over into the human population, whether this will become a, a public health crisis as well as being a conservation crisis. But then secondly, to try and, is there anything we can do about this to stop killing more elephants? Botswana has a third of the elephants left in Africa. And this region has over 10% of Botswana's total. We run the risk, if this 
carries on unchecked of losing between three and four percent of all elephants left in Africa. And that is an unconscionable thought. Actually getting to the answer of those three could take time. And we know like sometimes it can never be answered fully. Uh, so given that timeline, what can be done now to at least stop the spreading of whatever it's it so is? difficult yeah it's so difficult to say because we don't we don't know whether this thing can spread <laughs> we don't even know what it is so the, the most important thing we can do is find out what it is and then you can uh, you can develop a strategy based on that and to begin with understandably the, the Botswana government didn't want to uh, engage with other partner nations really just there's a reticence to ask for help but then when the story broke in the press two three weeks ago it became clear that this is of international importance. And I think COVID-19 has helped with that. People realize that a conservation problem happening somewhere in the world can have an issue everywhere around the world and it matters. But elephants also tug on people's heartstrings. People from, from Austria to Australia are devastated that hundreds of elephants are dying. And so the Botswana government have really ramped up the sampling of these, these sites and the carcasses and they're sending samples to the UK, to the US to Canada to Zimbabwe and to South Africa but as you say it, we might not know what it, we might not be able to find out what it is if it, if it was something easy we'd know already which means it's something complex or something difficult to find and that means the toxicologists and the forensic scientists have to go looking that could take weeks or months and we might never know and if we never know let's hope it burns through and stops if it, if it stays endemic in that population and that could be really worrying but we need to try and find out what it is and then design a strategy after that. And so far, there's been no sign of it spreading to any other species. Is that correct? Not yet, which, again, makes it really perplexing that this thing, whatever it is, seems to be contained within elephants. There's, there's a few other dead animals being seen, but you expect to see dead animals everywhere, but not in anywhere near the numbers of the elephants at all. It seems to be contained. Hmm. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's it's disturbing and it's unfortunate and uh, it's, you know, poor elephants, like they didn't have it hard enough to survive yeah, in, our, in our, in our world as is they, they need a, you know, they need a potential plague of their own uh, facing yeah. them. Yeah. It's really sad. I, Botswana have been this bastion of conservation and in the last six years, it's seen elephant poaching rise very seriously. And so that population is already under threat and stressed anyway. And now to have this disease hitting them, or whatever it is that's, that's killing them off. I, I can only imagine the effect that that's having on, on the elephant societies because they are so intelligent and so socially bonded. They have incredibly strong societal links, family links. And for them to be wa watching hundreds of their family and friends dying around them will be terrifying, massively traumatic. And that, that has a negative impact on the elephants, but also stressed elephants are aggressive elephants. So the prospect of human elephant conflict increasing is also very high as a result of this. And that's, that's concerning because human elephant conflict is, is problematic everywhere that elephants live. And mm -hmm. we need to try and find ways of, of mitigating that conflict, and helping people coexist with elephants. And a situation like this will only undermine that. Yeah, it's a great point to remind people that, you know, elephants, like many wildlife, but especially elephants that have the sort of the, the, the cognitive social dynamics and behavior they have they just like humans they see their kin falling and dying and don't know why and it is terrifying as i mean we know what the coronavirus is and it's still terrifying right even with with knowing what's going on uh you know i can imagine can you imagine the the sort of state of panic we would be in as a human species right now if we didn't even know what the virus was 
that like we were just seeing people dying going down and we literally had no idea and we had no idea what to do or how to how to figure it out like that yep. would be a state of panic that i don't think we we can even fathom no yeah. but, but <laughs> unfortunately it's a state of panic that so many societies have lived through <laughs> that wave of smallpox that ravaged through the americas before, before the conquistadors actually came through and finished everyone off that must have been terrifying to everyone and that's what this elephant society in Botswana are currently going through. That same level of terror. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, was, I should point out, as in us today can't fathom, human speech, humans historically have been through this yeah. too many times. Over uh, and but over. today we sort of assume that we have all the information. We assume that, you know, things get solved so quickly uh, in our kind of convenient culture, convenience culture where, uh, you know, we assume somebody else will fix it. But uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's sad to think about not just the fact that this is happening, but the, the mental health and the stress and the anxiety it's causing the elephants that are, that are surviving in Botswana and seeing this going on and, and not knowing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really important thing to focus on as well. This is beyond just the numbers, it's the stress that must be really awful. Yeah. Well, last topic, we wanted to talk about one of your adventures thought it would be kind of fun to just sort of relive it and uh, mm. so sort of, I, I picked the the atlantic ocean one just because that was wild to me um so yeah like let's let's do a little dive into that you yeah actually rode was it a kayak or a canoe or what what was it uh, a modified rowing boat so an, an elaborate rowing boat i know you 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 took an elaborate rowing boat across the entire atlantic ocean yeah over 63 days uh, it was it was you and and how many others? One or two others? One other, yeah, my friend James. And I, so many things come to mind, uh, like what was happening at night because the ocean's terrifying. Isn't it? <laughs> like it's just scary. Yeah. I even even walking on the yeah. beach at night. Yeah, I'm like scared to put my feet in the water because uh, I can't yeah. see what's going on. So what was happening at night? What happened? Did you hit any like storms? I mean, that sounds terrifying too, being stuck in a storm at sea, which you can't totally prevent. And and also, like, what about the fit? Like, how do you how do your arms not get tired? Like, what do you mean you yeah, roll well, across the Atlantic Ocean? Like, how, <laughs> how do your arms not just fall off? They basically do. Yeah, you, you fall to pieces. You 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 finish a wreck of a human. <laughs> you lo you lose so much weight and you're shredded. One of the weird things, because salt water is obviously awful and abrades really badly when uh, if you're in contact with anything and you're holding on to two oars and you're sitting on a seat so your hands get shredded and your backside gets absolutely shredded by the salt water abrasion and to try and mitigate that you, you need to wash but you can't get fresh water out of the salt water very easily it takes a lot of power we, we had a, a, a solar system that was uh, enabled us to turn fresh salt water into fresh water but we could only run that enough really to give us drinking water every day and then one kettle bath a week more or less so in the intervening days to try and walk off the salt we'd use just little wet wipes and for the first six weeks of the trip every i, I had one wet wipe a day uh, in, or, in order to try and wash the salt off and i'd i'd undo it and i'd quickly i'd wipe my ass and my balls just to clean those as much as possible and then i'd turn it to the other side and i'd wipe my face clean and then after six weeks, my friend James said, Niall, have you ever considered doing your face first and then your ass and balls? <laughs> 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 I've never thought of 
thought about it. So for the, the final three weeks of the trip were way more pleasant because I never faced it. It just never came to mind. So yeah, physically you're a, you're a wreck. You, you're, you're constantly sore because we, we would we rode for one hour on and then while the other person rested and then we rested while they rode for an hour, 24 hours a day. So that we just, you're constantly going. So it's a minimum of 12 hours of activity a day. We, we, we got blown off course a bit. So we had to increase our shift. So it was one hour on, one hour together, and then one hour off while the other person rode. So that was 16 hours of rowing, eight hours of rest in a, tw in a 24 hour period. So that, that was pretty tough. So you're in a bit of a wreck, but then I, you also, you're just so knackered in terms of fatigue as well. So nighttime, we still have our circadian rhythm. So in the day, you're generally quite awake, but at, at night, you're try your body's trying to put you to sleep. And something I figured out that when you are super tired, that different parts of your body fall asleep at different times. So I'd, I'd be rowing along, and then I'd just be like, what's happened, something's weird. And I realized that my arms had stopped moving. I'm like, ah, okay, arms, wake up. And then you'd kind of jog and your arms wake up and start rowing again. Or one time my, my face fell asleep, but my arms were still moving. And, and my brain was like, reach the camera. And so I was able to reach for the camera and take a photograph of my face while I was asleep and the flash woke me up. But I have this incredible photograph of me asleep with my eyes like half open, <laughs> looking completely haggard. And you, you end up hallucinating. Night times are mad. So you say it's scary. And obviously you can only really see a few feet at night and you're being pummeled by waves. But then there's also wildlife out there that you might be a bit unsure of. And sometimes that's okay, because if it's dark, you can't really see. But phosphorescence, so the glowing bacteria and, and bioluminescence, glowing phytoplankton, will sometimes tell you that there's something nearby. And every now and then we'd be rowing along, you'd just see this, this pulsation of phosphorescence going underneath the boat as some enormous gargantuan beast of unidentified origin passed directly underneath us and went away. It's like, oh God, I hope that's something nice. And yeah, you'd carry on. It was just, yeah, it's nuts. But at night, we would see like, shooting stars, but meteors as well. Like, watching a meteor come in and split up into multiple pieces and, and, and burn up in the atmosphere, you're hearing the meteor popping, all this crazy kind of stuff. So night times were traumatic, but also at times beautiful and serene. Yeah, pretty amazing experience. Did you calculate the chance of death going in? And if you did, what was that, what was that percentage? Yeah, we, we didn't, but it is known. So the, 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 there is a list somewhere on, 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 uh, on the internet about the number of people that do certain activities and, and, the, and the number of deaths per those activities. And, and of course, things like wingsuit flying have got a really high fatality rate and ocean rowing slightly lower. Um, but when, when we did it, only... 250 people had ever rowed an ocean so really small numbers of people uh, at the time it's now it's now quite a few more because it's now 13 years since i did it but there's been there was a fatality just a few weeks ago actually tragically um so a, a lady i know an american lady from from uh from california called angela manson incredible woman she's a, an adaptive rower so she was uh, differently abled. She'd had spinal surgery and various other issues. And she rode the Atlantic in the same year as me with a, a French man who had one leg. And they, they were this incredible pair of, of, of differently abled athletes that, that made it across just a few days after we did. Unbelievable. And then she went on to row, row around Britain and rode the Indian Ocean. Incredible. And she was attempting to row from the US, from California to Hawaii. And, and, she, and she died just yeah, two or three weeks ago. So, so just... Like 
it's tragic because I, I know her wife and I, and I know her, of course, it's all from that front, but also just a reminder of, of how dangerous this sport is. And, you know, I kind of slowly broke the news to my family because the whole thing of me doing it is still quite raw <laughs> um, to them, especially, like, we, we had one situation where we had a tracker beacon on our boat, which, which gave people at home an update every six hours of where we were so they could see where we were going. But we'd also call in on the sat phone every day to, to, to someone or other. So, so we'd have comms and we had email. But then with about three weeks to go, we lost the sat phone and we lost the email facility. because We got flooded by water and it killed our electrics. So the, the beacon was still going so they could still see we were going. Still, still proceeding west. We just couldn't communicate with people. And then we got stuck in a, an awkward system of, of weather for 75 hours where we did an eight mile circuit. And so our families at home for over three days saw that the boat was essentially drifting with no steerage because it was just doing a little eight mile circuit. And we were absolutely fine. We just, we just couldn't row into this weather. So we, we were on our parachute anchor and just, just doing a circle like this. But our families thought that the boat was, was drifting with, with two dead occupants in it. So it was pretty traumatic 75 hours from them. And then on the morning of that third day, we, 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 we did start moving. And yeah, my, my brother tells me that suddenly someone sent them a text saying, they're on the move, they're okay. And you can just imagine the relief that they were feeling when, when they saw that we were back on the move again. How much sunblock did you bring? <laughs> Lots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of sunblock, lots of, lots of Vaseline, lots of Sudocrem, and, you, you, and you, you end up losing a lot. But yeah, so it's slightly weird. You tan more on one side than the other because, of course, mm. you, you're going west. So there's, there's, and you're in the northern hemisphere, so the sun's slightly more, more on my right in the, in the south. So, so the right side of my face got stupidly tanned, left side slightly less. Was there any, any um, sea life encounter ocean life encounter that stands out i'm sure there are several but yeah two stand out so one was seeing dolphins coming up to the side of the boat at night and kicking off the phosphorescence so you've got the the, the combination of dolphins and bioluminescence at the same time next to your boat that, that was pretty mind-blowing and that was on my first or second night so you you're you're pretty stressed at this stage because you've just left land and you don't know when you're next going to see it and everything's new and suddenly you've got dolphins dancing in the bioluminescence so that, that that was pretty special and then right in the middle in the middle of the atlantic so a month and a bit in we got visited by a minke whale which spent 35 minutes with us and just did circles around the boat just stayed closer closer and closer and closer just out of reach of the oars and just at that point i'd, I'd got uh, bit of tendonitis in my elbow or something and I was feeling a bit bit, bit bad about that because it was quite debilitating and having this whale swim around us for 35 minutes made me realize the world is okay again <laughs> and a couple of days later the elbow sorted itself out and I was feeling a bit more relaxed but that that visit from the whale was just yeah just perfect wonderful that's so epic are you planning yeah. on doing any more like adventure excursions in the near future yeah yeah so I had, a, I had a pretty major accident four and a bit years ago and I, I broke my back in a speed flying accident. And that kind of put the skids on things for a while because I've got a spinal cord injury and uh, I spent 38 days in hospital to begin with and um, have had to kind of find ways of adapting. But, but I, I'm now back at being quite fit again. And I'm particularly interested in 
going to Baffin Island in Arctic Canada and doing an expedition to climb a mountain called Mount Asgard. And the reason for that is that my grandfather, my mum's dad, was one of the pioneering geologists, glaciologists on Baffin Island. And his team led the first expedition to climb Mount Asgard. Mount Asgard is stunning. You'll, you'll recognize it from James Bond because at the start of one of the James Bond films, James Bond skis off the top, base jumps and pops out his, his Union Jack. Uh, parachute and then flies down to the bottom and that mountain is in the middle of nowhere in Baffin Island and my grandfather ha has a little bit of a claim to, to that because it was his team in the early 1950s that climbed it so my brother and I would love to go there and climb that mountain as a, as a homage to my grandfather and spend a month in the area climbing some other peaks maybe climb some some unnamed ones and that would be that would be fantastic and then now I'm, 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 a, I'm a dad, my, my daughter is 17 months old, and I can't wait to start having the types of adventures with her that my dad had with us. So when I finished my sixth form, so before I went to university, I finished, finished school, and as a reward, dad took me to cycle over the Himalayas for a month. And I want to do the same with my daughter. Like if she doesn't want to cycle the Himalayas, then, then we'll do something else. But, but having that kind of reward for finishing different levels of schooling, but I might start with nursery. So when she's four and she finishes nursery school, we'll, we'll go somewhere awesome and have a big, big adventure. I, I can't wait to start doing that with her and, and let her be my vehicle to having fantastic adventures in fun places. What if instead of cycling the Himalayas, she prefers to uh, just play Fortnite? <laughs> I'd be surprised if, if, if that ends up being her, yeah, her modus operandi yeah. video games, but, but, but who knows? Yeah. 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 Sorry, I didn't mean to give you that. Would, that would be distressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think as, as a father, I, I want to be proud of her no matter what her life choice is, but of course, that, of course. That, might, that might be challenging. <laughs> <laughs> um, was it Asgard the, the, the fortress of evil in Lord of the Rings? Uh, it's was it a, wasn't it where the eye was? It was it was Asgard. No, um, Isengard. Isengard. Um, As, Asgard. Asgard is related to Norse mythology. Um, yeah, yeah. Isengard. But, but, I'm thinking of Isengard. Sorry. Uh, look up Asgard. A S G A R D. Look, look it up. It's one of the most unbelievable looking mountains on earth. And yeah, it, we we kind of feel that it's a birthright to go and climb it. Any shark, in, any shark encounters or shark uh, sightings during that trip? Not for me. So I was really disappointed, really. That my, my one big disappointment from that Atlantic trip was that we didn't get uh, visited by any sharks. But friends of mine got sunk by a shark. So, yeah, and they, they had to bail. They had to get rescued. So they were, they were out in their boat and they had the parachute anchor out because of bad weather at the time and it's, it's just a parachute that floats behind the boat to slow you down and a shark came up and got tangled in the cords of the parachute anchor and basically lost its temper and went mad and rammed the boat and it, it put a hole in the hull beneath the waterline it then took it took quite a few hours for that to slowly fill with water but 24 hours later they filled with water and they rolled over and couldn't roll back again because the ballast was now uneven because of because of the hole that the shark had put in and they then spent a few hours clinging to the hull of the boat <laughs> having having made made the call until a, uh, another boat came to rescue them so a pass, passing freighter came to rescue them but can you imagine that experience no, yeah. <laughs> sunk by a shark what do you think annalee uh me and manny want to row across the atlantic i think you we want, could do it you want to you want to ask him <laughs> yeah, if, he's down, if he's down <laughs> let's, 
I don't know. Something tells me we might all kill each other before the ocean does. <laughs> we didn't have a single crossword until the last night. I, we, managed, we, we managed not to swear at each other or anything until literally yeah. we, could see, we could see the end. It was at night. You could see the glow of land for the first time in over two months. And James was just pecking at me. For, for, it was getting on my nerves. <laughs> and I swore at him. And it was just the yeah, 63 days without a single crossword yeah, until need, the last night. You need to be very selective on who you do this kind of trip with. Yeah. You know, 63 yeah. days in a, in a rowboat in the middle of the ocean. That'll, that'll stress test any human relationship. It's definitely made or break, <laughs> made and broken relationships over the years. That's for sure. Yeah. I have, a, I have trouble doing like a weekend with somebody. Yeah. <laughs> like I can't imagine 63 days on the ocean with a, in a tiny boat. And James is an enormous man, huge, huge, big, big, strong man, and yet always claimed that I took up more space in the boat than he did. <laughs> uh, wow, yeah, that's it's incredible. Where, where did, where did, just last question on that, where did you depart from city-wise, and where did you uh, land ultimately? Yeah, we departed from La Gomera in the Canary Islands, beautiful little islands, volcanic islands, and we landed in uh, English Harbour, Antigua which is just a, an incredible place to come in. It's really narrow harbor. So you're, you're aiming for a harbor wall 100 meters wide across a 3,000 mile ocean, and, and yet you somehow make it. <laughs> All the more surprising for us to have hit this tiny target. And yeah, you make it in, and English Harbor is beautiful. The yacht club's there, and everyone on their yachts kind of sounding their horns and ringing cowbells and stuff. It was pretty extraordinary. Like overflowing, ever-vesting adrenaline in a way I've never really felt. It's the first time in 63 days that we knew we were going to survive. <laughs> that's, that's quite a nice feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's similar in a microcosm. Um, I've, I've done skydiving a few times and I think it's the same moment the parachute opens. You sort of like, yeah, you're like kind of, uh, you sort of exhale a little bit. I mean, yeah. you know, the odds of it, op of it not opening are so tiny. Certainly, the odds of, of, of a catastrophe there are much smaller than the odds of catastrophe rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. But yeah. it's still like, you know, there is that adrenaline rush and that exhale when the parachute opens. Like, okay, this jump went okay. Uh, yeah. Although I, I, will, I will argue that the, the process of, of landing with the parachute to me is more traumatic than the free fall. Uh, mm. I don't like the, the parachute landing part at all <laughs> uh, the, the ground comes at you very fast i have i have sprained quite a few ankles uh sort of mislanding uh yeah, in that, in no that, surprise in that regard yeah um yeah it's incredible it's an incredible story incredible adventure uh i, I really i you know it's one of those things i think we all tell ourselves we want to do those things and 99.999 percent of us go through life without doing any of them yeah. The, the, way, the way I got James into this was he wrote to me an email. This is 2006, July 2006. And he, he'd read somewhere online about the fact that you could row across the Atlantic and that there was a, a race that you could join. And he sent me an email saying, oh, we should do something like this. And I didn't respond for the first half hour or so because I was busy. And then when I did respond, I, I sent an email back say, saying, yeah, we should. P.S. I've just put the deposit on a boat. So the reason I've been busy for the previous half hour was because I was buying a boat for us to 
<laughs> just just paying a three hundred pound deposit, so nothing, nothing serious. But then he was committed because he, he'd he'd written to me to say we should do it. I'd written to him saying, well, we've got a boat, so let's so let's let's do it, man. And that was it. Eighteen months later, we we arrived in Antigua. Yeah, I guess the lesson goes: be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Someone might take you up on it. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Awesome. That's incredible. Uh, well, thanks so much for the time. This has been such a enjoyable discussion, uh, enlightening discussion, an inspiring one, um, as, uh, as it always is when we, when we chat. Uh, at some point, I do want to also tell you about the, the pollination project I'm, I'm working on. Great. Love, love to your, hear it. Yeah. Get your, get your viewpoints on it. But uh, Anna, do you want to do the sort of rapid fire questions at the end? So these are just yeah. some, some quick questions. Uh, now I'll just, uh, you don't need to elaborate. It's just a quick answer. Like what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind yeah. and then we sort of make compilations of these uh, at the end of the year. Cool. The first question is, is there a favorite book that you have about conservation or the climate and the environment that you recommend people read? I've just read a book called Wilding by Isabella Tree, which talks about taking a massive heavily industrialized farm and turning it back to nature and it's absolutely phenomenal and the whole world could learn a lot from that book i want to read that book it's very very good is there a nature documentary or film or show that you think is not well known but should be seen if people haven't seen virunga watch it it's on Netflix, or it used to be, and if it's not anymore, Google it, Virunga. It's unbelievable. Virunga is the oldest national park in Africa. It's in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's got mountain gorillas and so many other extraordinary species, and it is hugely under threat from militia and from uh, extractive industries, even though it's a national park. And the documentary that this team made is mind-blowing it's absolutely brilliant and well worth everyone watching we'll definitely plug that in is there what is your favorite animal on earth <sighs> tigers are hard to beat i've I, i've been i've been so lucky with wildlife uh, i've been charged by a tiger twice and that's that's up there with the coolest experiences that, that i've ever had so i'd have to say tigers uh, yeah, I, I love a lot of things. I, I love snakes that most people hate, and I freaking love snakes. But yeah, if I had to, if I had to, just choose one, it'd be tigers. Amazing. And last question: What is one behavior change that you think everyone should and can adopt to help impact and save the planet? Eat less meat. It's incredibly easy. It's good for your health, and it's great for the planet. You don't have to eat no meat. Just eat less. Yeah, yeah. I, I I I remember seeing this data point somewhere, but and it makes total sense. If everybody just ate twenty percent less, we would solve so many of the issues we have. If you just do 20, if you just do twenty percent less, yeah. And what, whatever you're eating today, right? Everyone everyone's starting from a different starting point. But if you just ate twenty percent less, yeah, absolutely. Um, awesome. Well, this has been great, and this has been uh, just uh, yeah, it's just so fun chatting. Nice to meet you, Anna. Great to chat, James. Yeah, All right. See you. Have a good one. Speak, speak to you again. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye.